last session, um, this is the one where the rubber meets the road. People are going to talk about what's really, what's really going to happen uh, as a result of Paris. Um, I think we're getting a hint of that. And Marion Tupi is going to be the moderator. He's the editor of humanprogress.org. That's a wonderful website. You ought to go check it out on uh, how things are getting just a little bit better compared to, say, 100 years ago. Um, he specializes in globalization, the political economy of Europe and sub-Saharan Africa. He's been published everywhere. You can't work here, okay, very long unless you get published everywhere. So I don't know why all our bios say that. Uh, and um, he uh, received his BA in International Relations and Classics from the University of Witwatersrand uh, in Johannesburg and his PhD in International Relations from the University of St. Andrews in Great Britain. Before I bring him up, I have to make, uh, there's a commercial that I have to run. Um, see this book? It's like really good. And there are a couple of them left out there. It came out today, so you get a first day copy of it. And it, it will be a collector's item because hardly any are going to sell. <laughs> now, I'll explain, let me explain why. Uh, this book speculates about what's going to happen in Paris. It is designed to stimulate discussion about Paris. So its shelf life is 31 more days. Uh, and then it's going to be revised in January with what happened in Paris and, and whatever snarky science stories I can add that will occur between now and then. It's been so outrageous for the last year, stories about the upcoming end of the world, that um, I, you, you get a new one every day. I forget what today's is. Whatever it is, it's wrong. Anyway, so Marion is going to uh, moderate this group, and it's going to be very entertaining uh, on what's really going to happen from Paris. Thank you. Oh, one other thing. Most importantly, we have a cocktail reception afterwards, so make sure you go to that. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. So uh, my job, like uh, Benito Mussolini's, is to keep the trains running on time. Um, everybody's going to get 15 to 20 minutes, uh, then uh, there will be maybe a little short discussion 15, 15 minutes, a uh, short discussion between the, uh, uh, between the speakers, and then we'll open it to Q&A. So as Pat mentioned, my name is Marian Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst here at Cato, and I'm also the editor of, uh, of humanprogress.org, which is a Cato Institute website devoted to documenting the improvements in human well-being. Looking at the state of humanity, we are struck uh, by the extent of progress that our species has made, especially since uh, Industrial Revolution roughly 200 years ago. Today, an unprecedented number of people live longer, healthier, and more prosperous lives on an increasingly cleaner and safer planet. As a general rule, as prosperity grows, so does our ability to protect the environment. So far, humanity has met every challenge, be it urbanization and the spread of uh, communicable diseases, uh, industrial revolution and air pollution, or population, and explosion, uh, population explosion and agricultural productivity. We have done that through adaptation and innovation. And that brings me to today's topic. What are we to expect in the years ahead? For example, are we going to see further efficiencies uh, in fracking, and a large-scale switch from oil to gas that will greatly reduce CO2 emissions? Or will, he, will the entire fossil industry uh, be replaced by cleaner 
sources of energy. In other words, will the CO2 reductions happen as a result of a bottom-up process of economic efficiencies and economic progress or as a result of a government uh, top-down diktat? And um, what does all of that mean uh, in terms of keeping global warming below two degrees threshold that the United Nations has identified as necessary in order to avoid human interference with the Earth's climate? Our first speaker today is Dr. Harlan L. Watson, uh, who is an adjunct fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and who was the ambassador and special envoy to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and senior climate negotiator and special representative at the United States Department of State from 2001 to 2009 under President George W. Bush. Previously, he served as a science advisor to, to Secretary of the Interior and Principal Deputy and Deputy Assistant for Water and Science at the U.S. Department of the Interior from 1989 to 1993 under President George Herbert Walker Bush. He also worked on Capitol Hill for several Senate and House committees for more than 20 years, including nearly seven years as Staff Director of the House Science Committee's Subcommittee on Energy and energy and environment. Please help me welcome Harlan Watson. Okay, thank you very much for the uh, for the kind introduction, and uh, I hope that uh, I won't take too much time and bore you too much, to uh, so that you will be able to enjoy the reception and the other two speakers, of course, and then the reception. Uh, just a little bit on my background, uh, I first got involved in the international climate change negotiations in 1991. It will soon be 25 years ago, shortly after the first meeting of the panel, the Intergovernmental, uh, Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee for a Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was set up by the United Nations uh, General Assembly. And so, uh, and then I've continued on through the years to follow the process when I was back at Capitol Hill and then for uh, some nearly uh, eight years then under the uh, Georgia W. Bush administration where I had the opportunity to be either the head or the alternate head of U.S. delegations to numerous uh, UN FCC C meetings uh, including the COPS, the subsidiary body meetings, I mean it goes on and on. So I probably logged Certainly, uh, probably a couple of million miles and uh, numerous hundreds of hours uh, on this uh, during my time. Now, previous panels, of course, have addressed the, both the uh, scientific legal issues. I'm going to start out, just give you a bit of the historical background. I don't think you can get a good idea where we're going unless you know where we've been. And believe me, this is... I'm going to get down in the grass. I'll apologize for that, but I really think that if you really want to understand it, you need to know the background. In fact, I would uh, highly recommend for those of you who have an interest in, in, uh, in history to read Rupert Dar Darwell's uh, Engaging History on, on uh, Global Warming and Negotiations, which really is excellent. Uh, just chronologically, say, and Richard Toll mentioned this at his uh, in his uh, noontime talk, 
It was really the late 70s, early 80s was uh, when the interest in climate change really ramped up. And uh, what really, uh, probably the first World Climate uh, Conference in Geneva in 1979 uh, is generally the starting point that most uh, historians will, will start with and when the really interest started. And then the Second World Climate Congress, also a conference, also in Geneva uh, in 1990, uh, really, which called for a framework convention on climate change and <clears throat> stimulated the US General Assembly, UN General Assembly into setting up this negotiation, negotiating committee, uh, which then entered, which uh, eventually led to the uh, UN uh, Convention on Climate Change. Uh, so I just want to go through through that history and apologize. It's dense, but I, again, I think you need to know where you've been to see where we're going with this. What has all this accomplishment, Richard told? Uh, I won't dwell on that a lot. Uh, he did a very good coverage of that. Bottom line is not much. Uh, what are the major issues which are facing the negotiators, and what are the likely outcomes? Uh, so if we go into the, what we have before us is really the bedrock of the negotiations is the Climate Change Convention itself. It uh, was adopted in the 9th of May, 1992 in New York, uh, where I had the opportunity to watch all of the hoopla uh, which went on when that, uh, which when that uh, event occurred. The world was saved. Uh, but then it, it took a while for the requisite number of uh, uh, ratifications took place. Anyway, it entered into force in 21 of March, 1994. Its ultimate objective, of course, is the stabilization of the concentrations in the atmosphere at a level which would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And that's generally all you see, but there's a very important line which follows that, which often is not referred to, but it's to be achieved in a, in a manner that allows uh, sufficient time to allow ecosystems to adapt naturally to climate change, to ensure that food production is not threatened, and to enable uh, economic development to proceed in a sustainable manner. Now, it's almost universally adopted. There are 195 countries plus the uh, European Union of Parties Convention including the United States. And the major body, the governing body of this apparatus is the Conference of the Parties, which is composed of all the parties. It is the supreme body of the convention, uh, and it generally meets annually. Sometimes it's even met more than annually. Now, here's the tricky part. The convention itself divides the world into three. You always hear developing, developing countries, but actually there are three major groupings of countries which have differing obligations under the convention itself. Annex one parties, so-called Annex one parties, which are composed of 42 developed countries uh, and the European Union. 23 Annex two countries, which are all the countries who were members of the uh, OECD uh, in 1992, with the exception of Turkey. And then the 103 non-Annex one parties, which are all everybody else who isn't either Annex 1 or Annex 2. 
Now, Annex 1 parties under the Convention are to take the lead in combating climate change and adverse effects thereof according to the principles of equity and common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. This common but differentiated is, is something you'll hear over and over and over again uh, that developing countries will use if they have spatial circumstances and therefore uh, cannot take, do not have to take ac action under the convention without the provision of, of uh, technology uh, and finance. Now, it continues on uh, that the extent to which developing countries' parties will effectively implement their com commitments will, again, provide, they can only do this if uh, developed countries provide finance, finance and technology. Taking into, fully into account that economic and social development, poverty, or ratification are the first and overriding priorities of develop, developing country parties, which indeed should be, I think, of all governments, the overriding principle. <clears throat> the convention itself placed extraordinary uh, responsibility on the developing, developing countries, particularly the Annex II countries. They have to pay for all the reporting. Uh, that the developing countries uh, do under the convention. They have to assist the developing countries, particularly uh, vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change and meeting costs of adaptation to those adverse effects. And the they're uh, also on the hook for taking all practical steps to promote, facilitate, and finance as appropriate transfer of and access to environmentally sound technologies and know-how to other parties, particularly developing country parties. So it's a, a large onus uh, on particularly the Annex II countries. Uh, the next, I think, iteration of this within was the Kyoto Protocol, which was adopted in Kyoto, Japan uh, in December of 1997. And it, this, uh, this is something, of course, that you're all familiar with. At the, I believe that the US ended up not becoming a, a, a party to this. Uh, and it basically placed all of the onus, all the, burg burg the uh, burdens of emissions reduction on the so-called the Annex I parties. They're listed in Annex B of the protocol itself. Uh, there are now 191 countries and the European Union are parties. Uh, they've set up a similar uh, so-called CMP as their governing body. It's the uh, so-called Conference of the Parties. Uh, serving as meeting of parties to the Kyoto Protocol. They also meet annually at the same time as the COP. It, uh, it contains three flexibility mechanisms to help developed countries meet their obligations, activities uh, implemented jointly. Uh, they've also set up a clean development mechanism and, of course, allow for emissions trading. Now, Negotiations for the second commitment period uh, were actually launched back in 2005 at the meeting, the first meeting of the uh, CMP in Montreal. And basically, remember the, the period of obligations for uh, emissions reductions were carried out from 2008 to the end of 2012. The Kyoto Protocol itself did not expire at the end of 2012, just the obligations to meet any further commitments without a, a, a amendment to the protocol. Now, you finally get uh, these, again, I mentioned they started in 2005, 2011, finally at, at the meeting, their seventh meeting in Durban. 
why uh, the Kyoto parties agreed to uh, a second commitment period, in other words, the post-2012. And then, uh, actually, in 2012, in, uh, in uh, Doha, uh, the parties agreed to a uh, second commitment period with uh, Japan, New Zealand, and Russia declining to participate. Separately, also in 2012, why Canada officially withdrew from the, uh, from the protocol. Now, in order for this new amendment to take into effect, you need 144 parties. Uh, they're only at 50 now, so they've got a ways to go. And I think that I, I doubt if they're ever going to actually ratify that. All of the uh, all the brain power and focus now is on agreement in Paris. Now, the next slide uh, just lists those countries. The Annex II uh, in the red here just indicates those that are on the hook for money. Annex One is the longer is, is the is the larger group. Uh, They've built a large bureaucracy, by the way, to, uh, to handle this. You can't have uh, an organizational organization like this uh, with the powers that you think you have without having a large organization. Uh, this runs at about your proposed budget for the next two years is something order $30 million uh, current exchange rates. And U.S. is on the hook for about 24.4% uh, of this or about $12.8 million at current exchange levels. Now, the path to Paris really got started in the uh, latter days of the uh, Bush, 40, Bush 43 administration in Bali uh, and adopted something called the Bali Action Plan. And uh, it basically said, again, it maintained this split between developed and developing countries. And it said we want something wrapped up for full implementation of the convention by uh, 2009. And of course, 2000, whoops, 2009 in Copenhagen, uh, that was kind of a bust. Uh, they just came up with a political statement, the, uh, the accord. And uh, they, so they took note that meeting uh, ended in a bit of a, uh, a thud. But he took that work forward into, into Cancun the next year, and he actually brought a lot of the provisions of the Kyoto, the Copenhagen Accord into play. And that also created the, uh, the Green Climate Fund, the infamous Green Climate Fund, and the, the idea of $100 billion. He also created you know, a few more committees. Um, more recently, in, in Durban in 2011, they decided to launch a process under the so-called ADP, the Ad Hoc Working Group on the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, uh, to, to uh, again, with a mandate to develop a protocol, another legalism under an agreed outcome with legal force under the convention applicable to all parties, which was to be, to, which is to be uh, completed by uh, 2015. This is to uh, not only this, this would uh, carry on from the 2020 period, but you're also addressing the pre-2020 uh, ambitions. Uh, let's see. Okay, uh, we've had, in terms of meetings this year, we've had a number of text negotiations. Uh, they first met, actually, this group first met back in uh, May of 2012, but they've had a number of uh, sessions this year. They've had four official sessions. They will resume in Paris uh, in the, at the end of November. 
if you just look, we'll see, you'll see that the text has kind of gone up and down. They started with, with uh, a brief text. People keep adding stuff in. They try to come out. They, they tell the co-chairs to uh, consolidate. They give them a charge to bring out a text. The text comes down. They go in, and then everybody wants to make sure their, uh, their uh, stuff is in there. And so we're now up to something order of uh, 50, some 50-some pages now of, uh, of text uh, that will be considered as a starting point in Paris. All sorts of options, all sorts of brackets, disagreements. Quickly, what this has accomplished, uh, I just did a quick run on emissions uh, from a couple of different sources. Anyway, you see that the rural emissions are up by about uh, 40%, with the bulk of that, of course, coming from the growth in non-X1 parties emissions. Uh, if you just look at the fuel combustion numbers, they're slightly different, but basically you're seeing all the growth in emissions uh, pretty much coming from develop, developing countries. And uh, you know, there's no reason to think that won't continue even with the INDCs that have been submitted so far. Uh, as quickly, major issues, I'm not going to read through all of this obviously, but certainly financing the, the how much money is going to be there is going to be the big issue. Subsidiary uh, to that, you know, how are they going to reach this $100 billion figure, which has been prominent? Uh, loss and damage, there's also a concern about technology, how are you going to protect uh, property rights? This whole differentiation, developing developed versus developing countries' actions. Uh, the legal form, of course, which the last panel uh, addressed. Uh, transparency, how are you going to measure, report, and verify what sort of review mechanisms will be in? The whole issue of adaptation, mitigation, balance. Developing countries always think there's too much emphasis on mitigation as opposed to adaptation. Uh, is there going to be emissions trading allowed under the under it? And uh, this whole this whole deal about the uh, the two degree or decarbonization by the end of the century. Uh, just my guesstimate on the likely outcomes. Uh, I think th I think there'll definitely be an agreement. Uh, there's simply too much uh, momentum behind this, uh, not only from the French who are putting out over $200 million to host this meeting, but also from our, our president and other world leaders. So there'll definitely be an agreement. Uh, Non-legally binding uh, language, unfinanced, uh, but some reference to this $100 million. The developing countries will insist on that. Oh, with regard to the no legally binding, I think there will be language which will make the INDC reporting requirements quote, legally binding, but that will be argued it's just required under the convention, so it's nothing new. Uh, I think there'll be some, there will definitely be a call to try to get in uh, elimination of fossil fuel subsidies. It'll be interesting to see how OPEC reacts to that. Uh, probably best if they just call for elimination of all subsidies from my point of view. Again, it's balanced between mitigation and adaptation. Uh, they'll address that. This whole loss and damage issue, uh, the developing countries are particularly looking for funds and technology for that. There was something agreed to in Warsaw, this Warsaw International Mechanism for loss and damage. Uh, implementation probably will be of that, uh, will be referenced but not enhanced. It is up for review in 2022. 
And uh, just uh, bottom line, got much more work ahead. Just noting that it took eight years from 1997 to 2005 to agree to the rules for the Kyoto Protocol. And I think we're looking at definitely uh, some fraction, a strong fraction of that before the rules of this will be worked out. So with that, I'll stop and hope I haven't run over too much. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Chip Nappenberger. Uh, he's the assistant director of the Center for the Study of Science here at Cato, and he coordinates the scientific outreach activities for the center. He has over 20 years of experience in climate research and uh, public outreach, including 10 years with the Virginia State Climatology Office and 15 years as the research coordinator for New Hope Environmental Services. Um, Chip has published numerous papers in the major uh, atmospheric science journals on global warming, hurricanes, precipitation changes, um, weather and mortality, and Greenland uh, ice melt. Uh, he was also the administrator and major contributor to wor the World Climate Report, which was the original and longest-running blog uh, on Earth and climate change. He holds an MS and BA degrees in environmental sciences uh, from the University of Virginia. Chip? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Marion. Um, what I hope to do today is tie the, the morning session, which was about science and new findings in the science of climate uh, change, and these later sessions where we've talked about policy and politics involved in what's going on in Paris, and try to put those together and see how the science and the politics, what's the result of all that. Um, so what's prompting the need for uh, these UN conferences in the first place is the idea that climate change from human activities is going to be bad. Um, this shows what we're looking at and what everyone's worried about. Um, using uh, an IPCC, their most extreme emission scenario, which everyone sort of thinks we're on, you get a total warming of four and a half degrees C by the end of the century um, over the pre-industrial level. Um, and this, using this tool that's available from Climate Interactive, which um, I just came upon recently, um, it breaks down the, um, the temperature change um, into different countries' responsibilities. Um, and this is the change from 1850 to 2100. Uh, the big bar in the middle is China. Um, we're the bar on the uh, left-hand side. Um, some of this, it's not 1850 anymore, it's 2015. So using the same tool, you can get an idea of climate change that is to come, at least if you believe the climate models in, the, in this particular emission scenario. So what the stated goal for the UN is try to keep um, total ch temperature change between the end of the century or, or total and, and pre-industrial of 2 degrees C. You can see that um, we've already gone up about 0.8 degrees C, there's, so there's not a whole lot left to work with about... Uh, 1.2 degrees centigrade. Um, and this is how it's sort of going to play out um, in the future. So obviously, if you were interested in uh, trying to control this or lower it or mitigate it, um, the, big, the big one in the middle is where a lot of emphasis has to happen, um, and that's China. And also, you see towards the right-hand side, Africa and the Middle East and um, India starts to show up there, and why you see the contributions from um, the developed world, like the U.S. and um, 
the EU, um, we still have a role to play under this scenario, um, but it's pretty small. Um, so the goal is to bring these INDCs from all these countries together and try to lower those numbers down to maybe 1.2 degrees C from, from 3.6. That's going to be a, a lot of work. Um, so the question is, now that everyone's turned all these in, you know, how are we doing towards that 2 degrees C goal? Um, this chart shows basically, as of last week, who's turned in their homework assignment and come up with um, these promises of what they're going to do to try to address climate change. Um, I think now this shows 156 parties and 92% of the sort of carbon dioxide emissions are covered by these um, intentions to do something about this. There's no rule as to what those intentions need to be. They're just that you're supposed to try your best to do something and, and the INDCs describe how best you're going to try. So with all this already submitted, the question is how are we doing climatologically? Um, there are a couple of different uh, tools on the web that you can use. They're keeping track of these things. So my work is, is being already done for me, and all I had to do was look through these things to see um, how good I thought they are. Um, the one on the left is a group called Climate Interactive, and the one on the right is a Climate Action Tracker. And these guys are keeping track of all the INDCs. They're running them forward in time. They're using um, simple climate models to predict what's going to happen, and then sort of reporting the results. So you can see there's that four, let's look at Climate Interactive on the left for, a, for a, at first. You see the four and a half degrees Celsius in yellow. That was sort of that baseline I was showing you, or that, I, that, that IPCC worst case sort of scenario. Um, and then they show the proposals, the INDCs that have been turned in so far, get you down to about three and a half degrees C um, of warming. And way down there at the bottom is our two degrees C goal. So what's been turned in so far um, is not going to get us where these folks want us to be. Um, climate Action Tracker on the right sort of shows a similar thing. Their baseline is four and a half degrees C. They show under current policies um, about three and a half degrees C of projected warming. And under the pledges, the INDCs, they have that down at 2.7 degrees C. So if you look at Climate Action Tracker, you sort of think, well, we're, we're, we're making a progress down towards that um, two degrees C target number. Um, the difference between the, the Climate Interactive and the Climate um, Action Tracker numbers are the Climate Interactive assumes all you get is what's promised in those INDCs, and the and Climate Action Tracker says, well, if they're going to do all that work, they're going to continue to do it into the future and probably um, even do a little bit better. So they've run those out under uh, a much greater sort of set of assumptions um, than the Climate Interactive folks have come. But even looking at these things, it seems as if uh, 3.6 or 3.5 degrees is lower than the 4.5 degree background or baseline. So it seems like, hey, we're, we're coming together and we're making some progress. But um, is that really the case? Um, the press likes to think it's the case, and people like to push that as the case. So we're making some progress. Let's make some more. But is this really the case? So it turns out that the baseline scenario that these folks are using, that they have improperly, in my opinion, called business as usual, is actually a worst case scenario. And one that is not representative of business as usual pro progress 
um, that's either historically or probably to come into the future. Um, and so they're, they're showing false gains uh, by using a, a baseline scenario that's not really accurate. Um, in fact, even the IPCC itself, when it's describing um, that RCP, that representative concentration pathway um, that they're using, they say that the, R- the RPC pathway has higher emissions than all but a few of the published baseline scenarios. And they describe a baseline scenario as a projection of greenhouse gas emissions, um, which do not, which as they might evolve in the future, in which no explicit actions are taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I want to pay. I want you to look at the chart there in the bottom right. The the blue line, the upper blue line, is the RCP 8.5, and it's plotting out um, fossil fuel emissions over time. And the orange line in the middle is the next. Um, IPCC pathway down below that. It's called the RCP6 scenario, and you can see how it traces out. Now, interestingly, those were all developed in the IPCC Working Group 1, the scientific report. The Working Group 3 report took it upon themselves to try to define what an actual baseline scenario is. And they developed um, the the, the set of gray bars with the gray line in the middle, um, which is much below the, the blue line, the RCP 8.5 scenario, as one set of baseline scenarios. They also have a different set in which the energy efficiency in which our, the energy efficiency of our economy um, increases um, at a pretty fast clip. And when you, but it's also a set of baseline scenarios. It's not being pushed by climate action, but merely um, new technologies and you know, the quest to improve. And you see those numbers are actually running down below the RCP um, six numbers. So what's being pushed, uh, so it's all to say that the baseline scenario, business as usual, is a pretty strong tool. It, 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 I mean, it's pretty strong. It's not a frozen technology scenario like it's often being portrayed. You'll see, uh, you know, the, bus- the baseline, uh, the business as usual scenario um, is going to lead to all sorts of bad things in the future, when in fact, business as usual is is uh, powerful, and it's gotten us where we are now, and it's going to take us into the future. So it is a strong um, technological force, if you will. And in fact, the IPCC recognized this. On the left is a plot of the energy intensity of the global um, GDP. And the black lines on the left show the history, and you can see that our the global economies are getting more efficient um, in using energy to produce goods. And if you the IPCC has extended that history, the trend out into the future, um, and that's that dotted line. And in all their, their baseline scenarios are in that gray and in, in the sort of orange and that red line, are, their baseline scenarios improve the business as usual faster than it has historically. Okay, so these guys are optimistic to look into the future. Um, and this is without addressing climate. What doesn't happen in the IPCC baseline scenarios is there on the right, the carbon intensity of the energy. You see the historical trends there in the black line, and then the the gray bands go out. But the middle of those gray bands is that black line stays pretty much the same as it is now. In other words, as you might expect um, in a scenario that does not address climate change issues, the the fuel mix of our energy sources, at least in these baseline scenarios, doesn't change much. Um, as Pat has pointed out earlier, there is an argu- well, there's, there's an argument that says natural gas is, is um, fast becoming a lot more abundant, a lot, more, a lot cheaper than we've ever realized it to be. And so 
my guess would be that it's not going to stay confined to the U.S. And as Pat mentioned at lunch, we'll probably be, um, become a fuel of choice throughout the world, which would push that carbon intensity of the energy um, toward, uh, down towards the bottom. In other words, it would be an improvement. So a combination of uh, business as usual increases in our um, energy efficiency of our GDP and a carbon intensity energy efficiency is going to even drive these uh, emissions lower into the future. So what do you get out of this, these baseline scenarios? On the left-hand side is a whole group of IPCC um, climate model um, uh, scenarios. And then the right-hand side shows the temperature as a result from those. And the, the baseline is sort of in the gray in the upper part of that sort of maroonish um, set on the left. And you see the same thing on the right. And I've marked uh, as a gray bar there on the right-hand side uh, sort of where the baseline temperature forecasts are coming in from, from standard IPCC working group three runs. And, that, and it runs somewhere between three and uh, four and a half degrees C um, with sort of an average, a median of that comes in around three and a half degrees uh, temperature rise. Well, if you remember from my early charts, three and a half degree temperature rise is what those two tools were showing as being predicted to being projected from the INDCs that are already turned in. In other words, the INDCs are not much different at all from just what's expected from business as usual. So everything everyone is promising is basically uh, just what was going to happen anyway. So that temperature, 3.5 degrees C, is obviously above 2 degrees C, which is their target. But it's being run with an equilibrium climate sensitivity of 3. And if we watched our morning session, you saw that there's a lot of new research that says that equilibrium climate sensitivity is a lot below 3. This is a summary of recent uh, papers in the published peer-reviewed scientific literature. Uh, it's been published in the last three or four years. Um, the IPCC range is there on the top. Uh, that's sort of with the gray bar. And it runs uh, between about 1.5 to 4.5 degrees C with a 90% 90 range of between 1 degree C and 6 degrees C. Remember, the equilibrium climate sensitivity is how much the Earth is going to warm up with a doubling of carbon dioxide. And uh, all those colors are a bunch of different um, papers, a bunch of different findings, a bunch of different um, experiments that were run within those findings. And I've drawn a vertical bar that was there that shows the mean of those is somewhere around 2 degrees C. Um, Judy, this morning, in her paper, um, actually argues that it's closer to 1.5 or 1.6 degrees C. So the question then what would happen is, what, what would happen if the IPCC were to run that business as usual scenario with, instead of a 3 degree C climate sensitivity, um, a 2 degree C climate sensitivity? Um, this was a list of papers. Is there evidence that that is happening? I want to just show you something. Um, uh, Roy touched on it this morning when he showed the side-by-side -side graph of um, the climate model projections versus what is actually going on with the observations. And this is just a different take on that same idea. Um, the, 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 um, the bar charts on the right-hand side, um, the blue bars, let's look at the upper, the, the, the top one is the past 20 years, and the blue bars are what climate models have predicted the trend um, the rate of temperature rise is going to be. So the, and the red arrow that I put on there is actually the observed rate of temperature rise uh, during the past 20 years. So it falls 
outside of, the, of all the model prediction, predictions. Um, the bottom chart is going back further in time, a 30-year trend. And, and again, you see that the observations, marked in yellow there, fall uh, way to the left-hand side of that distribution. And uh, I summarize all that on the chart on the left. Um, in the middle of that, along the bottom is the trend length, starting from 10 years on the right and going all the way back to a 60, 65 years, which is basically 1950. Um, and the vertical axis is the temperature, rate of temperature rise. And the, the black dots in the middle are the model projected temperature rises. And the colored dots along lying on the bottom are the actual observations. And so you see, um, no matter which trend period you want to look at, from 10 years all the way back to 65 years, going back to 1950, the observations, the observed warming, falls at the very lower um, bounds of the model projected warming. The climate models are running hot. And this is giving us further evidence that that climate sensitivity um, is probably lower than what these climate models are run with. So, if you run those models with using a two-degree climate sensitivity instead of a three-degree climate sensitivity, all of a sudden, your business is warming, your business as usual warming drops down to about two and a half degrees C, and potentially even lower if you consider um, natural gas uh, to place, uh, replacing coal in the energy mix uh, globally throughout this um, century. In other words, that two degrees C target that everyone is so um, hung up about is still in play, even if we don't take directed actions. Um, and so, uh, to quote an op-ed from my boss, you know, the, U the UN should cancel its, its Paris meeting. We can all pack up and go home because there's nothing to, to, to work out. And so all this fretting and hand-wringing about, you know, binding, uh, whether it's going to be binding and whether the, the Congress is going to have to deal with it or the presidential actions, it's sort of all moot. We can all pack up and go home. And um, if, the, if the science is right, then um, it shouldn't be much of a problem. You don't have to take all my word for this. You can go out and check it for yourself if you want to. So I'm just pointing yourself to a couple of online modeling tools. Um, the one on the left is just a screenshot of, of the MAGIC model, which is the one that the EPA uses um, to do its climate simulations. And, and the one on the right is a, a model called Sea Roads from um, Climate Interactive. And I've given you the website. And these are online tools. And you can put in your own emission scenarios. You can put in your own climate sensitivities um, and a whole lot of other configurable parameters and, and hit go. And you'll see um, what kind of effect it's going to have. And it's something I recommend everyone do every time the uh, next time the administration comes out with a new grand plan to um, reduce climate emissions, reduce CO2 emissions um, on your toaster oven or your, your car or something like that. You can come here and plug it in and see what, kind of what kind of bang you're going you're gonna to get for the buck that it's going to cost you uh, to do those CO emissions. And you'll be uh, quite surprised at how little it is. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our last speaker is Oren Kass, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he focuses on energy, the environment, and anti-poverty policy. His report, Leading Nowhere, uh, the Futility and Farce of Global Climate Negotiations, was released by the Institute in mid-October. Kass served as the domestic policy director of Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in uh, 2011 and 2012. In that role, he shaped campaign policy and communication 
on uh, issues from healthcare to energy to trade and represented Governor Romney uh, at the MIT Energy Initiative Presidential Energy Debate. He has written essays and columns on energy and the environment for Wall Street Journal, National Affairs, Forbes, uh, Washington Examiner, and uh, other publications. Uh, please help me welcome Oren Cass. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, and especially for giving me the final Friday afternoon time slot. I, uh, I actually asked for this time slot. I think this will hopefully be a little bit of a synthesis of a lot of what you've heard today. Um, there actually is not a lot of things in here that you did not hear at all today, but it, it tries to weave them together a little bit into how this Paris summit is likely to play out publicly. Um, what is already being reported in the media, what actions are already being taken uh, in Washington, and how that's likely to play forward. And, and just to give a quick plug to Chip, I'd say if you take one thing away from this uh, conference today, it's this point about baselines, which is that everything positive you are hearing about the Paris talks is not a function of actual commitments from countries. It is a function from a very function of a very disingenuous game uh, that the media actually is playing where at the behest of activists, where it uses that RCP 8.5 that no one, including the IPCC, believes is an actual realistic baseline. It calls that what would happen without action and then says the INDCs are better than that. But that's just not true. That's not the way the world is expecting things to play out. Um, and I'll jump a little bit into country by country how we know that's actually the case. So what are we arguing about? You know, I think the climate debate means many different things. There's the popular narrative, which is that there are people who believe in climate change and people who don't. Um, that's obviously not really reflected by what serious people who focus on this issue for the most part think at any point in the political spectrum. There's the much more significant scientific debate that we covered this morning. Uh, climate change is catastrophic. No, it isn't. Um, that's obviously critical to how we should think about Paris, but it's not something that Paris is going to affect or resolve in any direction. Uh, but then there are two very interesting, important debates that most people who care about this issue can actually engage with as a policy matter and that, that Paris is very germane to. So the first is the central policy debate. US action will produce global results. No, it won't. Um, at the end of the day, every debate about a domestic action that President Obama might speak about is a debate about whether that could help to trigger global action. Because everybody, including the US EPA, concedes that on its own, US action doesn't accomplish anything. And so this debate about can the US catalyze global action or not is at the heart of everything we fight about domestically, and something I think that Paris actually resolves pretty conclusively. And then there's the actual negotiation, which we've been hearing about a little bit today. Let's pay trillions of dollars to poor nations. No, let's not. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that even though this is the only real issue up for negotiation at Paris, this is not something that anybody is willing to actually speak about domestically. Um, it's something I've written a lot about and figured at some point someone would pick up ask a Democratic candidate about, um, but obviously that's not happened. And it's interesting that it hasn't, because Hillary Clinton, of course, proudly announced the, the, the Global Green Climate Fund once upon a time. And it's surprising that no one since then has, has chosen to ask her, do you believe it should be the policy of the US government to transfer wealth to developing countries as part of climate change? 
Um, I actually don't know how she'd answer that question, but I'd be very curious, curious to know. And so that's what Paris gets to, and I think Paris is going to give us pretty good answers on both of these questions. So the policy debate. The policy debate about whether or not countries are going to act has effectively already been resolved by the lead up to Paris, by what Harlan was describing. Um, just to move forward toward an agreement, negotiators had to abandon the idea that there would be an enforceable agreement with consequences for not taking action. They had to abandon the idea of objective standards, baselines, or metrics that were even going to agree on what the baseline would be and what your INDC has to look like relative to that. And then they had to even abandon the premise of mandatory review and revision. Um, I think the agreement may very well have this provision that you have to report your data. But the original idea for the Paris process was that everyone was supposed to have submitted their INDCs months ago. They were supposed to be interrogated, pushed, prodded, uh, improved in various ways. And the developing world just rejected that, um, did not comply with the deadlines, essentially kind of turned in their homework at the last minute. And so there is no actual attempt to improve any of these things. And the, the rationale for this approach now is it's, it's kind of a fun bumper sticker. It's, it's an upward spiral of ambition, right? It's that we're going to have pledges. People are going to get fired up by them and, and move to make even broader pledges. Um, there was actually a, a terrific comment in, in Nature recently. History and the science cooperation predict that quite the opposite will happen. Uh, and this is something Richard was speaking about a little, bit, a little bit at lunch. Economics theory, negotiation theory, everything tells us this is no way to actually get anybody to do anything. Um, and so the fact that this is the process that had to be pursued just to move forward toward an agreement that everybody would sign actually already answers the policy question. Um, those who were saying US leadership will not move countries like China and India towards binding commitments to reduce their emissions were right. And the fact that now under this alternative process, China and India have submitted commitments is being held up as proof that they will act when the fact that this is even the process that they're using has already made it a foregone conclusion that they're not going to act. Um, and this is only made more clear by what they've submitted. So. This is, this is another flavor, I suppose, of, of CHIP's bar chart. I, I like to look at it this way, which is you know, the IPCC gives a carbon budget. Here's the total amount of carbon dioxide we could emit as a civilization and stay within two degrees. It's about, uh, it's about a thousand, uh, what is that, a thousand additional gigatons. And the developed world will approximately emit that itself over the rest of the century. The developing world will emit about four times more than that and 80% of all emissions. And so that's why that's all we're talking about. And so let's look at the top seven developing countries and what they've submitted and why you end up with CHIP's analysis that there is no move off an actual baseline. So China has proposed to peak by around 2030, as the US National Laboratory already predicted they would three years before their commitment. And they've promised a 60 to 65% reduction in intensity uh, which Bloomberg has conducted a comprehensive analysis of these and found is actually less ambitious than their business as usual. And so I think the other funny thing about China is now, of course, they've said they will have a cap and trade system, um, which engendered a lot of enthusiasm that see China is acting. But cap and trade is not important for the trade. Cap and trade is important for the cap. If you set a cap in your cap and trade system at the level that you would emit anyway, 
you have not actually taken action on climate change. You've added some bureaucracy, but China has lots of bureaucracy. Um, but to celebrate a cap and trade system that does not cap below business as usual is nonsensical. India, 33 to 35% intensity in reduction. Um, all of the charts, all of the analyses show this is business as usual or less. I think actually the, the best way to understand it is in their INDC, they report how quickly they have been achieving energy efficiency gains already. 2005 to 2012, they got a 2.7% annual improvement in energy efficiency. To hit this target, they only need to keep going at 1.2%. So they can slow down their improvement by more than half and still hit what they've submitted. Indonesia, too vague to assess, does not allow for any accountability per the World Resource Institute assessment. Brazil, 43% below 2005 levels sounds impressive, except that they're already 41% below 2005 levels. And with both Indonesia and Brazil, the issue is that their emissions come actually more from deforestation related issues than from fossil fuel emissions. And so it's actually very difficult without any firm baselines to even understand what they're proposing. Pakistan, no plan submitted. Nigeria, no plan submitted. And I don't know if there are any um, Saturday Night Live Jeopardy parody fans out in the audience, but part of the premise, Celebrity Jeopardy, Alex Trebek at the end, the final Jeopardy question is always just like, write down a number. And he emphasizes, it doesn't matter what number it is, just write down a number. Or, you know, write a thing. Essentially, that's what the INDC process is, right? Just submit anything. And neither Pakistan nor Nigeria managed to do that. And then Bangladesh has said that their emissions will only grow 247% instead of 261%. Um, but of course, that 261% is not any sort of objective business as usual. They have said they believe their emissions would grow 261% and instead will grow 247%. So this is what Paris is achieving. Um, and the bizarre thing is that the, the prevailing narrative in the media, I would say, is it worked. Countries are acting. The US has no excuse not to act. Take that, conservatives. Um, and I think my best example of this is from the New York Times news report on India's submission, which said, under the terms of the plan, India's economy will grow sevenfold by 2030, while 2005 level, while carbon emissions only triple. Yet if India took no action, emissions would also grow sevenfold. Um, now, that's plainly nonsensical. I had. Uh, a lengthy exchange with the publication about whether or not that could possibly be true and what the modeling showed. Uh, but this was not the sort of thing they were interested in correcting. And so this is, um, this is what will be talked about by default. I think there are two critical things that just need to be repeated over and over again by people who want to be rational about this process. One is that the structure is already farcical. That we are coming down this path already means there will be no meaningful agreement. And the second is that the plans themselves submitted under a farcical construct, right? Why not submit something ambitious and at least get credit for it, still did not depart from business as usual. Um, and I think when I say any rational person should say that, it's important to note that it's not just those who are skeptical of climate action who should feel this way. Anyone who took seriously the idea that we need to act on climate should be much angrier. Um, and so if you think about the possible groups here, people who really would prefer not to see significant action on climate don't think it's worth it, 
are not the ones ultimately most harmed by this process. It's the people who really believe that action is critical. And so it's very easy to sort those who actually believe action is critical from those who are just Obama cheerleaders based on who is enthusiastic about how Paris is going and who thinks it's cataclysmic. And obviously, the media is in the enthusiastic category. So the international negotiation. What they are not negotiating about in Paris, and others have covered this extensively, is all of the details of how the INDCs will work. Because the INDCs have been submitted, they're not going to change. Um, I think Andrew on the second panel mentioned this, this insertion of the word decarbonization. Bloomberg was very excited. By adding one word, UN climate deal moves in new direction. Because the word decarbonization was added as a potentially proposed non-binding long-term goal. You could put breed purple unicorns into that same clause, and it would have exactly the same impact on future policy. What people are negotiating about is money. Um, and this is not something that the public has any awareness of. The, the public's vision of climate negotiations is that it is the world coming together to solve a collective action problem. The idea that it's actually essentially a shakedown of developing nations by, of of developed nations by developing nations will surprise people and is something people may actually discover um, by the time Paris is over. And it will be very interesting to see how people understand climate finance. Because one thing that is not well defined by anybody is what, why we are even justifying climate finance. Is it ecological debt being repaid? That's obviously what the Pope wrote in his encyclical, which everyone embraced without reading it. Um, it would be fascinating to have this debate. I don't know who at any point in the political spectrum in the US would stand up for the idea that we owe developing nations a debt. The second one, which is my favorite, is reparations, which is the idea that we should be paying uh, for climate for the damage from national disasters in the developing world. Because of course, anytime anything happens in the US, President Obama is first to announce that this is the result of climate change. The idea of actually acknowledging that in an international context is absolutely off limits. Um, and so you have this interesting split where the developed world is all too happy to use the rhetoric of climate disaster domestically, but absolutely will not touch it with a 10-foot pole internationally because of the legal obligations it might open up. Um, I think, and it's, it's very clear that, that the developed world will hold on this one and will not accept any legal obligation to reimbursement for climate disaster. And then the third is investment, which is, in theory, what the Green Climate Fund was supposed to be about. People have long since forgotten this. When Hillary Clinton announced the Green Climate Fund in 2009, she specifically emphasized that the money is only on the table so long as China and India accept binding commitments. In the five years since then, during which developed nations have been raked over the coals for not coming up with this $100 billion, that, that requirement has fallen by the wayside. Um, and it's not clear whether it will come back or what it even would mean for it to come back. Because we don't really know how to deliver, we don't know how to deliver this kind of aid to build a school in the third world. How we're going to build a cutting edge, smart, distributed electric grid using technology that doesn't exist yet is a little bit harder to understand. And so we don't know how to implement it and we don't know what we would be getting. There's no real way to write into the agreement any sort of enforceable tit for tat requirement that the dollars go to things that it wouldn't go to anyway. It's actually a lot like the Planned Parenthood funding debate, where people on the left say, well, the federal government isn't funding abortion because the dollars only go to other things at Planned Parenthood, when money is fungible. 
Um, and so a green climate fund, should it happen, has no real guarantee of creating any action with respect to climate. What climate finance is, is it's the price of an agreement. And that's really the only thing that is going to happen in Paris, is the developed world is bidding against itself to get the developing world to sign a piece of paper that it can hold up to show that it got an agreement, even though the only thing it will have succeeded in agreeing to is the existence of an agreement. Um, and that actually, I think, makes things very unstable in terms of what it means for a negotiation. Because there's no actual principle here, right? There's no actual uh, exchange of things that people want from each other that have real value. There's no rational basis for why the climate finance should be of a given level. It's just a staring contest. Um, and so there are three possible options. One is developed countries walk away with nothing. They say, you know, we are not signing a binding commitment to more than $100 billion a year in public financing. And developing countries say, then we're not signing. And, and you have a repeat of Copenhagen. Developing countries could get what they want. President Obama and others, you know, we spoke about the French, who are so desperate for an agreement, could say, fine, we don't care. We, don't, we realize we're never actually going to find the money, but we're going to do whatever it takes to walk out with an agreement. Or most likely, I think, is, is what Harlan described, which is that you get a vague agreement, which is better for everyone than walking away. Developed countries get a signed piece of paper. Obama gets his legacy. Developing countries probably get some money at the margin, prospect of some more money someday. Um, but none of these outcomes would, would surprise me. And so realistic expectations for Paris, I think the most likely is a weak agreement with vague finance provisions. Much applause, no action. Um, I think you'll then have an interesting moment where we have to transition from celebrating the success to talking about the fact that we haven't actually accomplished anything and climate action is critical. And so we'll have sort of a segue period back to climate crisis. And then we'll have a continued push on the US to do more. Because of course, if we need a spiral of ambition, we need US leadership to prompt that. And I think rational goals for people who want to be rational about this are one, a repeat of Bird Hagel. I think Congress really needs to pass a resolution specifically on climate finance, saying it does not matter what is signed in Paris, we will never appropriate a single dollar to this kind of climate finance arrangement. Um, that will obviously be criticized as an obstacle to an agreement, but it's the equivalent of standing up and shouting, the emperor has no clothes. Um, and there's no shame in, in doing that at a parade. Well, if the emperor is naked, there is no shame in doing that at the parade. Um, the second is to cement the goalposts, actually force people to acknowledge what the baselines are and what we're measuring relative to. And then the third one is to focus public attention uh, and the policy debate on climate finance, because that is really the only thing that's up for grabs at this point. That is something that would be very expensive, and I think it's something that uh, those with a rational view of, of this policy issue are, uh, are likely to win quite decisively. And with that, I'll hand it back. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I've noticed in your bio that you worked on uh, global uh, poverty issues and as somebody who's worked a lot on foreign aid and uh, um, global economic development, I find it baffling that anybody should, should think that if the United States transfers a billion dollars to the government of Zimbabwe or, or Angola for environmental improvements, that that money will not be immediately stolen by a corrupt government elite. I mean, it's just absolutely baffling. 
Um, with that, let me open it to Q&A. Uh, please wait for the mic to get to you and uh, kindly form your question in a, uh, uh, state your question in the form of a question, uh, direct it to an appropriate person. Um, ah, would you like to, uh, are there any questions between? Am I on? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious how I think kind of the vague do-nothing agreement is most likely, but what would you put the odds of either developed countries walking away or kind of putting up the money being? Well, I don't think, you know, they're, they're very smart people uh, in these negotiations, surrounded by very smart lawyers, <clears throat> and they know how to word stuff so that People can go back home and say, I got this and I got this, but basically it means nothing. It's just kind of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I don't think there's any way that they're going to, uh, going to come out with any firm agreement, quote, legally binding or otherwise on the money situation. Uh, they're going to exhort people to, to probably be referenced this $100 billion, that there's already a precedent for that. And there'd be exhortations to uh, to do more. I think there's 10.2 billion dollars in the Green Climate Fund right now. Uh, there was a big uh, at the latest uh, IMF World Bank uh, meeting in Lima, Peru. There was a number of the developed banks, uh, development banks, came up with an extra, I don't know, 15, 20 billion dollars over the coming five years. Uh, OECD just put out a report that something like $62 billion uh, last year was already uh, available for, quote, green, uh, green climate fund type activities. Uh, but if you looked at those numbers, most of them were, a big portion of those were loans. And what the developing countries really want, they want the money. <laughs> uh, they want grants. Uh, and we'll go do good things for it, but don't bother us. One of the interesting things about the Green Climate Fund, by the way, <clears throat> as opposed to other funds under the convention, the Green Climate Fund was put under the COP directly, as opposed to the other funds which go through the, uh, which go through the uh, uh, World Bank. So have very rigorous auditing standards, uh, and so on. But the Green Climate Fund is still working on its actual rules, but you can bet, I would say, that as long as it's under the, uh, under the direction of the Conference of the Parties, uh, strict auditing rules will not be embraced. And uh, so that is also going to be very difficult for governments to come back home and say, we're going to put more money into a fund without rigorous accounting standards. We know what the money is going to go for, et cetera, et cetera, as you would have uh, under the other funds uh, that are made available. Um, indoor, over there. Isn't it possible that one of the outcomes is that the developed countries say that they're going to give X number of dollars, which essentially will be taking it from current aid programs and putting it in there, giving it a new name and saying, hey, this is what you've got. And uh, uh, 
I, I think that, uh, that might be possible, and, and it could actually result in a really worse situation for developing nations because now you've got money that was being used for ostensibly for some kind of aid and occasionally doing some good, and now it's going to go for something that may not be as worthwhile doing in the first place. Now, I think one of the one of the things that could uh, might be here is that uh, they can. Uh, it's also possible that you could uh, call virtually anything that is being done as money for helping adaptation. You know, you could do that for agriculture, for health, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that way, you can have a face-saving solution. The developed countries are given some funds, and people can point out this is a real fund, but actually. Uh, when, it, when you uh, look at where the funds are coming from and how they are being uh, used, it, it is really a new label on old, it, you know, it's uh, uh, old wine in new bottles, essentially. I was wondering if anybody has, uh, whether uh, Oren, if you have uh, looked at uh, the monies that are being set aside, are they real new monies or are they old monies being reprogrammed? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, Harlan mentioned this $62 billion study that, that OECD just released uh, that raised a lot of, of these issues that infuriated the developing countries who said that's not new money for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, you know, in some cases, I think the UK actually has explicitly said, sure, we'll put more money into the Green, green Climate Fund and just moved it out of development aid, um, which technically is in line with its commitment under the Green Climate Fund um, because the, the development aid does not typically have any such strings attached. You know, the interesting thing is that the numbers actually work out quite well. So total OECD uh, development assistance is about $130 billion a year. And um, to the extent that, that countries get pushed to actually put up hard cash, um, there's certainly the possibility of that swap. I think to the extent a country like, you know, if, if you sort of play out the full legal battle let's say hypothetically developing countries held firm and said we absolutely want hard cash. The Obama administration was so desperate for an agreement they signed on to it and then came home and tried to find where that money was going to come from, could probably redirect a bunch of it from a foreign aid budget. Um, developing countries obviously are going to be equally focused during the negotiation in defining the cash as net of existing development aid. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think this just goes back to the fact that it's, it's a shakedown, not a uh, climate negotiation. I mean, where in any of this are we talking about mitigating climate change? Um, and, and so if it becomes a kind of pure real, real politic fight over numbers, it, you will end up with some sort of legal agreement. And, and I think there's no chance that, that the U.S. Congress ever appropriates a dollar above um, what currently goes to the foreign aid budget. Can, can I just, just also comment? Uh, I think you may have be probably most familiar, uh, most people are familiar with uh, a column that uh, Bjorn Lomborg wrote, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal within the last couple of weeks, about the danger of diverting money for climate as opposed to addressing real ills that, real Ills that countries really want to, and you can actually do harm. Uh, I know you've written about this a lot, Ender, about a few, uh, how money going, for example, to uh, address malaria uh, could really make a hell of a lot of difference as opposed to just some nebulous climate change activities. 
So uh, you can actually do damage to, uh, to countries' ability to develop and move forward by having them get money not for people to address real society ills, like disease control and so on, but divert, diverting it to, quote, climate change activities. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to quickly follow up on that money uh, item. Uh, what I found missing today is a follow the money uh, look at things. Who is benefiting from this money spent? And I'm going to bring up one uh, example and let the panel hopefully address it. Uh, Siemens in Germany has benefited enormously from the wind turbines that have been built in the North Sea and also off the Dutch coast. Uh, this is large industrial uh, size revenue coming into this company as part of the climate uh, problem, solving the problem. Uh, address who gets the money. Where is this money really going? And I'd like the panel to comment on that. Thank you. Well, I, right now there isn't really <laughs> any money going. I mean, there's lots of money in the climate context generally. There's so little uh, climate development aid, unless I'm forgetting any. Harlan might uh, should, should definitely add to that that it's not it's not as much a factor today. In theory, if there was a lot of money going to this, I think it's a mix. I think it is just a slush fund that would be very quickly siphoned off in the developing world, um, and it's a bunch of new renewable energy infrastructure. You know, one of the other really fun things about India's INDC is that. First of all, it says it needs $2.5 trillion itself. That's, that's so $100-plus billion per year just for India. And uh, its big plan is to build 40% renewable energy capacity. Now, that got reported as it's going to generate 40% of its energy from renewable energy. Uh, but that's not right. It meant that it will just build enough wind and solar gigawatts of capacity that in theory, if the wind is blowing and the sun is shining at some point in time, maybe it would come online. Um, but, but that is literally the transaction it's proposing, right? If you want to give us $2.5 trillion to build wind turbines, we will build probably $1.5 trillion of wind turbines and take the other trillion somewhere else. Um, but again, that bears very little relation to actually reducing its emissions or, or pursuing the goals of the conference. I think you have situation, for example, uh, in fact, I think Richard Toll mentioned that at, at lunch, there's a lot of uh, what they call rent seekers that are getting rich off of this, uh, as opposed, and who's paying for it, of course, is the consumer. Uh, so you have a lot of that going on. You also have a perverse effect, uh, for example, in China, it's, I think it's been widely reported, the construction of loads and loads of windmills, but there are no transmission lines running to them. Uh, so you have some of that going on also. Right. That would count as capacity in India's proposal as well, actually. Yeah. Next question. Yeah. Thank you so much. George is Mihaias. I'm a French, but I'm based in Geneva in Washington, D.C. I've been working with Norway and Japan for a few years. First comment. It's surprising Japan is playing a very, how should I say, weak role in Paris negotiations. Well, it's because of Fukushima. Uh, probably you, are, you are aware of that. Japan being the most successful uh, country in the world to reduce emission, to adjust the industry, and so on. This is one comment. Second comment, it does not appear in any of the documents 
I had access to. Uh, what are the technologies which can change the game, specifically sectorial technology for agriculture, for example, which may be 30% or so contribution to uh, um, uh, climate change, I mean, global warming. Uh, nothing has been evaluated. What are the technologies available? How to address the needs of uh, uh, developing countries? Uh, so uh, I think, and I went around the world and I identified technologies like fertilizer, natural fertilizer, which are available for small farmers starting from next year. We are experimenting those technologies and it works. Nothing has been done in terms of evaluation of that part or water desalination or for cities, air conditioning, which in America probably is 40% of energy consumption. So those technologies are available. Could America take an initiative saying, let's have an entrepreneurial approach and we have a say in using those money in really serving those developing countries as well as developed countries? Thank I you. hope we make Thank you. Well, I'll take the, the Japan question. I, because of Fukushima, Japan is, is now actually planning to build new coal, um, which is why it's not out there pounding the, the lectern on emissions reductions. Um, but I don't know if you guys want to comment on the technology. Uh, yeah, I mean, Japan is, I think they're also uh, kind of reeling from, uh, not really from withdrawing from Kyoto, which was, of course, their, uh, they decided not to participate in a second commitment for, for Kyoto. Uh, so I think that's also part of Japan's uh, reluctance. But, but certainly as the, uh, you know, with the nuclear situation in Japan and having to go with fossil fuel uh, power generation, that's certainly a big part of that. Uh, I think you're asking, and I'm assuming, I haven't really read, dug into the Working Group 3 report, but I'm assuming that was the job of, IP, one of the jobs of IPCC Working Group 3 is really address the technologies that, uh, that could reach certain levels, emission levels. A lot of work has been done in this country, so-called engineering studies. There was something called the five lab studies, five national laboratories, the Department of Energy. This is back during the Clinton administration, did several volumes of uh, where technologies were in the pipeline in terms of development and so on, and what, what they might accomplish. I think these, these things are still done. Uh, the problem is, if you add up everything that comes from these engineering studies, wow, there's no problem whatsoever. Unfortunately, the engineering studies often do not include things like economics. Uh, they don't include consumer preferences. Uh, so there's a lot of things that those don't cover. So what looks like a menu of technologies that would be, would really address the problem really, really, uh, really can't in the real world. Right in front. <clears throat> Thank you, Myron Ebel, uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, I agree with everything you've said about, you know, that this is all about uh, moving money from the Annex I countries to the non-Annex I countries. Uh, and P President Obama asked for $3 billion, I believe, over four years, and he asked for $500 million in the fiscal year 2016 budget request. And I would just point out, that the House Interior EPA Appropriations Bill has a prohibition on any money being shifted to the Green Climate Fund. Uh, my question is, 
it seems to me there is one thing in this Paris Climate Treaty that could actually come back and bite, and that is the five-year review uh, thing. Uh, Christiana Figuera said at a press conference yesterday that uh, the, the INDCs are a good first step, and, and, but much more is going to be needed. Well, the treaty doesn't have that in it, but it does have this five-year review thing. Every five years, the convention will come down with more needs to be done. You need to undertake more commitments. And I wonder if you could comment on that. You know, it's, it's going to be entered. You know, there is, a, as you well know, there's lots of language in the, uh, in the draft negotiating text on this review process. And that the idea that your next INDC has to ratchet down, though presumably it's going to be a continual ratcheting, ratcheting, ratcheting as, as you go on. And there's some uh, also interest uh, also in starting this process as early as 2018. Three, just three years from now. Uh, I think that's going to be resisted. Uh, I think it's going to be resisted primarily by the developing countries, particularly the China and India, are not going to put up with that. Uh, in fact, I think any sort of a, uh, they're going to be very reluctant to submit to any review of what they've done. Just from a, uh, just from a sovereignty standpoint, they will argue. And so, this brings up the differentiation issue. Are there going to be different levels in terms of your INDC submissions, whether you're, quote, an Annex 1 or Annex 2 country, a developed country party versus a non-developing, uh, a developing country party? And I think we'll see, we'll probably we'll see that. You know, the, the, this was like the deadlines you may remember from Lima. Uh, they came in on the INDC. March 31st of 2015, uh, they urged the submission of INDCs by March 31st of this year for those countries that are in a position to do so. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, again, I think you'll see language like that. You're not going to get away from this differentiation issue because it's baked into the underlying convention. I've always submitted that the real problem is the convention. If you're really serious about addressing climate change, you would take a handful of countries, you could probably get the top 10 or 12 emitters taking the EU as, a, as one. You'll cover 70, 80% of the emissions depending on that mix of countries uh, that you'll gather. That was the basic point in, in the uh, Bush 43's administration major economies meeting. Uh, Obama carried it on, he reinvented it and called it the major, uh, the major economies forum, MEF versus MEM. Uh, but this was new. Uh, so to me, as long as you're operating and negotiating under this, which we've agreed to, it's, you know, we've ratified this thing. Uh, and as long as you use that as a premise for your negotiation, I don't see how, if you're really serious about the problem, I don't see how you're moving forward. And in fact, uh, there was some frustration, I think, from Todd Stern, the, uh, the chief negotiator for, for the Obama administration, a couple of years <coughs> ago, uh, said, we may just walk away from this process. We're so frustrated. And uh, I don't think they obviously are not going to. But uh, anyway, there's, there's a lot of thinking along that. This is an impossible uh, platform to try to negotiate from. 
Yes, my name is Kevin Anderson. I work for the National Archives and Records Administration, and I just wanted to comment a bit more about the uh, emerging technologies and energy. Uh, the Department of Energy does still have that program. It's actually stronger than ever, uh, and you can find it on the FEMP website, F-E-M-P. So, uh, and they have some wonderful things. They actually did a, a, a beautiful job a few years ago uh, developing the household uh, LED lamps, which now we see at Home Depot and so forth at, at very competitive prices now as a result of a competition that was done across the board uh, among companies. And um, they gave a $10 million prize for the top winner in that uh, category. Yeah, so Phillips, I think it was, wasn't it? Phillips won that yeah, one, you're, yes. And you're mentioning uh, FEMP, the, the Federal Energy Management Program, right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. The lady in front. Thanks for your presentation. My name is Li Yang. Uh, I'm not so surprised that your conclusion is kind of pessimistic. If we compare with a USA domestic policy of social reform, it's not working anywhere. I just wonder, I have been in our IMF World Bank meetings, and they do have some kind of demonstration how they save and how do they have a climate change and how do they improve their well-being? If we can do this direction, if we can really sincerely in the United States do something like this, that will be helpful because in the United States, everything is unjust, manipulated, obstructed. So money divert to benefit a few, big corporation rather than benefit the targeted people. So I just wonder, for instance, there's money or technology or goods to the developing country, really help them how to say, use the solar panels, and then maybe you don't even need a public dollar. All you need is a private philanthropist or investment. There's really risk their own money, but they really have a very potential benefit and investment return. And thank, so thank you. you thank you. That will, we'll have to take that question because time is time is very quick. So corporate uh, corporate welfare. Anybody has any any thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, I think you know an interesting point was this question: Why don't we just do technology transfer? And couldn't we at least help matters by you know taking solar panel and, and wind technology and so forth that we already have and, and spreading around the world? And I think the reality is that we would be happy to do that. It doesn't change the economics. Um, the reason that more wind and solar is not being installed in other places around the world is not a lack of technical expertise. You have manufacturers like Siemens who are more than happy to show up and install the technology. The problem is that it's too expensive and someone has to pay Siemens to do that. And so, you know, to the extent that technology transfer is an issue, um, that would be a, a very easy negotiation. It benefits everybody to spread the technology. Uh, the, the, the question is who's going to put up the money. Okay, a very last question, a very quick question. Gentleman in the blue suit over there. Thank you very much. Just a question concerning your estimation of the interest of the developing countries 
uh, incentive to not play as a victim, but as an equal partner because of the health issues that are facing these countries' political stability. How much of that do you factor into your judgment about the role of the developing countries not playing the, the role of the victim, but actually stepping up and advocating a joint dynamic role in Paris? Thank you. Anyone wants to take that? Let me give you, we have another problem in the negotiating forum. <laughs> we have very many. One of the big problems is that the typical negotiator uh, from many, many countries, particularly developing countries around the world, come from the environment ministries. And in many parts of the world, uh, and like our EPA, the environment agencies are not very strong voices in the government. And this is just considered something, you know, who knows, they give it to the, you know, nephew or somebody. Uh, or niece or nephew that they need to give a job to. And so they're not very strong personalities, nor do they have any clout uh, within the government themselves. So that's one of the really big problems, as opposed to the U.S., China, uh, in particular the EU, where you actually have multiple ministries involved. The EU still has the... Uh, the energy and climate minister, I guess, is officially in charge. But you have many voices coming in. The State Department, for example, encompasses the whole, in fact, the process is run through the National Security Council, uh, China, NDRC, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, ministry with the biggest clout, so, uh, are, really able to, uh, are really able to muster uh, the full weight of the government behind them. And you don't have that with it, with a lot of the developing countries uh, coming in. Basically, too many of them just money, money. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. So thank you very much. That's all we have time for. I'm happy to say we are right on time. Uh, thanks to the panel um, for uh, fascinating inputs. Uh, thank you, Ted Michaels, for organizing a very interesting conference. Thank you for coming, and uh, we'll see you for drinks upstairs. I would like uh, a couple uh, point, make a couple points here. I ran through about 20 of my greener friends uh, to ask them to be on this panel as to what was really going to come out of Paris. And I think what the panel showed us is because nothing is going to come out of Paris, that that must be common knowledge uh, amongst our greener friends. I'd also like to give a hand to Rachel Green and all the conference people. You guys did a great job setting things up, so thank you. Everybody.